ka kino to paunamu, he paunamu onamata. Your greenstone is awesome. It comes from traditional times. Enga iwi o te motu no mai anō ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. He wahanga tēnei matātou katoa. I'm Justin Murray and this is Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. He ahua Pākehā engari, he nākau Māori. She may look Pākehā, but she has a Māori heart. That's how people described Pākehā composer Jenny McLeod to Mariah Rakuraku before they met earlier this year. Composer Jenny McLeod is with her talking about her involvement with Te Hui Aranga, the annual Catholic Māori Easter event. Was doing a, 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 a ngere. Um, I can't remember which one it was. Maybe probably it was the Rupia Rupia. I'm not sure. Um, but this was just echoing because big cliffs on the other side there, just echoing. And I thought, man, I'm just hearing this land. I'm hearing the voice of this land, you know. I get the same feeling sort of when I hear Richard Nunn's playing as Kawawa. I feel I'm hearing this land actually speaking. That's the voice of it's of the of the Tupunas too, but it's 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 it belongs here. Jelda, Jenny coming up later in the show. One of New Zealand's premier reggae bands, eighteen fourteen, began playing in a church in Kaio. Several years on, as it was then, it's very much still a Fano affair. Well, two thousand and four I was playing with my boys and just playing around community events around Northland and stuff and um we come down to do a gig in Auckland for Maori television and um it was straight after that gig we got offered some festivals and um, after that I think the following week I, I went home and sat down and thought it all out and then I went to see my nephew Darren Carton who's a great singer, great vocalist and asked him if he wanted to join the band and he pretty much joined the band that weekend and we've been on the road ever since. Patu Colbert coming up later in the show. Plus we'll hear some of their music. That's what's coming up in this edition of Te Ahika. Te Ahika Radio New Zealand National We've featured a few exhibitions on the show, mostly with a Māori flavour and usually talking to the respective Māori artists. So it was a bit of an eye-opener to check out an art exhibition at Rotorua Museum. Yes, the kaupapa is Māori, but with almost all of the artists European. Rotorua Museum has that slightly airy feeling to it that fits perfectly with its history. The bathhouse building hosts the Rotorua Museum and was opened in 1969. Two operations, one a museum, the other the art gallery in the north wing, combined eight years later in 1977. It's tall, with wide and steep staircases that go up three floors with its winding banisters, a focal point when you first enter the museum's craft kiosk. I'm here to check out the object of the portrait. Uh, my name's Kyle Chittam. I'm actually from Auckland, but uh, I originally come from Napui, up north, um, and I'm the curator of art here at Rotorua Museum. Can we talk a little bit about your background in terms of curating? Come. Yes, I can. Did you come from Auckland Museum? Oh. No, I didn't. Um, I actually studied as a jeweller originally, a contemporary jeweller, um, and then went through a number of different uh, 
careers, I guess. I was As a high school teacher. Um, and then I came into the curatorial field um, through a place called Object Space in Auckland, which um, deals predominantly in craft and design, contemporary craft and design. Um, and then over the years I've worked in a number of different roles as a curator, so for Waikato University was my last position, looking after their art collection. Whakatane wow. um, Museum, I worked there as the Programming Education Coordinator and um, another uh, number of other small positions in between. Were you here when this officially opened? I was here when the exhibition opened, but I wasn't the curator of the exhibition. The exhibition was actually curated by Damien Skinner, who... Um, is probably more well known for his writing of art publications. So he did a book called The Carver and the Artist, uh, which was a publication about Māori modernism or the development of Māori modernism. And that's really put Damien on the map as somebody that's um, interested in Māori art and all things Māori. Um, And he was invited by the museum to curate this exhibition from our collections. The book that Carl mentioned, The Carver and the Artist, written by Damien Skinner, takes an in-depth look into the work of Māori artists, notably Arnold Wilson, Paramatchet and Selwyn Muru. These were always in the ownership of the Rotorua Museum, what we're about to... Yep, everything that's in this exhibition has come from our collection stores. Um, a lot of the tanga that's that we hold is actually owned by Fano. So we caretake on yes. their behalf, so kaitaki or however you want to look at it. And then there's other works. There's a lot of paintings and works on paper in the exhibition as well, and they either belong to us or uh, some of the works also belong to the Rotorua Energy Charitable Trust, mm-hmm. who we look after their collections as well. So let's walk around the object of the portrait, Portraits of Māori and Taonga Māori from Rotorua Museum and Rotorua Energy Charitable Trust Heritage collection. Let's start. (laughs) The exhibition uh, was put together by Damien as a way of, one, highlighting the collections we have, because a lot of people don't see what's in the storerooms. They don't have access to the storerooms. And a lot of people know that we have a huge number of um, tanga Māori and um, this was sort of a way to put them out on display and to give people an opportunity to see the wealth of stuff we have. Keeping in mind as well is that a lot of it doesn't have what we call provenance, so it doesn't have history that goes with it. We don't know a lot about some of the objects in the exhibition um, or in our storage because as you know, time's gone on, you know, the links have been broken, um, they've either been sold or they've been given down through yes. the generations and a lot of the histories have been lost. And you can only go by what the whānau tell you. Exactly. And sometimes the whānau know a lot of information and sometimes they know very little. So that's why one of the reasons we don't have a lot of labels in the exhibition. Okay. Which is quite an unusual way to do an exhibition. So we have a um, brochure that you walk around with and um, numbers next to the objects. But a lot of the objects don't have history, so they don't need individual labels in that case. Actually, interesting, yes, because I'm seeing like pictures of oh, Tupuna, Māori, and the, yeah, there are no labels. There so you're no just labels, looking yeah. through them and wondering, you're creating your own story. I mean, is that, is that really the case, or you use the brochure to. Well, you can use the brochure, but um, or the premise for the exhibition is um, Damien wanted to highlight 
um, portraits from our collection, portraits of Māori, that included Taonga Māori in the portraits. And just to make those connections between the objects that um, these portraits are uh, painted, usually painted with, yes. um, and how they relate to the actual physical object. So what you see in the painting is what's in the case or what's on the wall. Also, there's a case in front of us with um, various ponamu. So are you saying that whatever they're wearing in the portrait, Carl, is, could be found in here? Well, examples of it. Oh, yep. So not the actual, <laughs> not oh, yeah. the actual things in the portrait, but... Uh, so, for instance, we've got a picture of Tiarani Haere Hooker uh, by Charles F. Goldie, and lots of people know who Goldie, Goldie. is because his work sells for a lot of money. He was a painter that um, admitted that his interest was in uh, painting Māori before they died out. So he, he had this view that Māori were dying out as a race. And so a lot of his portraits include um, Kākahu and Heitiki and uh, lots of really important pieces owned by those subjects in mm-hmm. the portraits. So what we've got is we've got a portrait by Goldie um, of this beautiful uh, tupuna. And then in the case next to it is um, a whole lot of examples of Heitiki. And a lot of them will be from the same period as the one that she's wearing. And because our collections, we hold so many examples, probably not as many as Te Papa or Auckland Museum, but we hold a lot of examples for a regional museum. So um, the exhibition is split into five different areas. Um, there's Whakairo, Motaringa, Poi, Taniko, Kākahu and Heitiki Ponamu. Whakairo to mean carvings, Motaringa. Ear adornments. Poi taniko, poi made of taniko, heitiki ponamu, and kakahu, korowai or cloak. You can see as you move through the exhibition, there's bits of text on the wall, there's um, some whakatoki on the wall as well. And so those, those sort of relate to different um, areas as well. So you can move through the exhibition and you can see the relationships between the words that. Um, Hidden Mead has written down and the objects on display. So we've just been looking at the area that's sort of been defined as the um, Ponamu area. Ponamu. There's also in front of us there's a section that's uh, about the kākahu and we've got a number of portraits that include um, people wearing uh, really beautiful examples of kākahu. Which is the cloaks. Yes, yep. the cloaks. And there's a number of different cloaks on display as well. So Yeah, let's move towards these. One of the examples that we're standing in front of is a really uh, beautiful feather cloak um, that includes uh, feathers from the kakariki, uh, from the kaka, mm, from beautiful. wood pigeon. So there's lots of different examples in here. And you can sort of see that over the years it's worn and that's, that's one of the problems with looking after these cloaks is that they do wear, particularly feather cloaks because the, um, the feathers do come out. Yeah. So it's quite hard to look after them, but it's a really important thing that they come out on display occasionally. Is that a kahu kiwi? Yeah. Oh, beautiful. So this is actually one of the smaller examples we've got in the collection. There's a number that are really um, full-sized ones. And it's really just based on you know the selection of the kakahu or the korowai or however you want to describe them, mm-hmm. was based on you know, our ability to display them safely as well. 
Um, this is one of the bigger cloaks in our collection, and it's quite an old example as well. I can tell, yeah. And it's got the, the really fine tunical border, um, and that's one of the things that this section also talks about. Moving towards this other space in the exhibition, uh, the object of the portrait. So this is the um, section on Fakairo, um, and it includes a number of different examples from the medium, but, you know, Fakairo is such a broad yes. um, area, and, and it's really just examples that can be reflected in paintings as well. So um, we've got a model waka, or a wakahuia, um, we've got a toihu from a waka that was found partially buried. We've got a pou, and we've also got some examples of taiaha, taiaha. tukutuku, and heke. Um, so this section here is on taniko and poi. And the painting that we're standing in front of is by Marcus King, and it um, depicts a number of young Māori girls sitting in pew pew um, in a Māori village... Um, and it's sort of become quite a cliché of what Māori, you know, the typical Māori scene. And Marcus King was actually employed by the tourism department to um, produce images for um, tourism posters. So a lot of his work kind of looks like the typical cliché of Māori society. the poi twirling Māori girl. And that was specifically to entice an international audience to New Zealand. And you'll sort of see in the painting that if you look through the village, um, you can see out to either a lake or a beach or whatever it is. And he's tried to include as many uh, symbols of Māori culture as he can. So we've got a pātaka, we've got a whārenui, whārewhakairō. The kākahu hanging up there. Kākahu hanging, just hanging about. He's tried to sort of represent Māori culture in one image. And then in the cases below that, we've got a number of examples of uh, pew-pew that were made for more of a um, performance. So it's got a red wool skirt underneath a pew-pew, which are actually sewn together. So, you know, a lot of the Māori performance parties that would have been performing from the 50s and 60s mm-hmm, and 70s yeah. would have worn these sorts of outfits. Um, and then in the corner here, we've actually got a, a costume that was made by Emily Schuster um, oh, for the Miss World contest. Emily Schuster was a renowned weaver and helped establish Raranga Weaving at the Māori Arts and Crafts Institute, known as Te Puya in Rotorua. She died in 1997. Today, the weaving school, Te Rito, is run by Emily's daughter, Edna Pahiwa. And it was worn by um, Linda Ritchie, who was our Miss New Zealand in 1971, and she wore this in the traditional costume section. And it actually had a pew-pew with it, which was stolen on her way back from the competition um, at Heathrow Airport. So are most of these portraits, um, Carl, painted by European artists? A majority of them, yeah. Yeah. I would say probably... um, I'd say almost 100% of them, actually. Okay. I mean, that's part of what the point of the exhibition is as well, is that kind of representation of Māori culture from a European perspective. But what a lot of the European painters tried to do was to be representative of what they thought Māori culture was. Right. And so... Sometimes it's it's cliché. Sometimes (laughs) it is clichéd. And there's a portrait behind you by um, an artist called Trevor Lloyd, who was actually a cartoonist. 
Actually, I was going to say it kind of looks caricature. Yeah, it is. It is very much a caricature of you know the young Maori maiden, and she's coyly holding her poi close to her, and she's very you know chubby-cheeked and all that sort of cliche. But what it did do was he was in a position to put Maori faces before a general audience. So even if it is a little bit cliched and a little bit um, pulling on some of those um, relationships that we know aren't that great, mm-hmm. um, it did put the Māori face out there. So this exhibition is in Rotorua, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the portraits of these tūpuna are from Rotorua. They could be from anywhere. Our collection is predominantly Rotorua and Te Arawa. So we collect specifically in okay. those two areas. Right. Um, and that's to get away from those major um, kind of, you see a lot of those major collections which include um, material from all over the country. Yeah. Whereas our collection is very specific to this place. And so you get a lot of locals coming through. Yeah. What's the reaction been? Um, I've been up here a few times when there's been um, whanauin mm. and they've recognised people in the portraits. There's a number of um, pieces in the portrait that relate to um, Guide Rangi. Um. Who, you know, a lot of people are related to her and they come in and, you know, it's having that kind of immediate reaction. And we've got a number of um, images throughout the museum and the displays that relate to the guides. Rangi Tiara Denon, known as Guide Rangi, was famous for her guided tours at Whakariwirua. She became a guide in 1922 and was interviewed about the more famous people and royalty she guided around the village. It earned her recognition both here and abroad. Um, so we're just standing in front of a portrait by Sidney Parkinson, which is a very famous image. The thing about these um, images, um, which were created in the 1700s, so this is you know Cook's tour and Cook's time, is that there isn't a lot of information. Sometimes they have recorded the names. This just says the head of a chief of New Zealand. Yes, yes. Um, but it's a very famous image because it's been reproduced over and over and over again. And it's um, become quite representative of the European view of Māori at that time. How long is the exhibition on for? Okay, so the exhibition opened on the 19th of September and runs through until the 25th of November this year. Kia ora, Carl Chitam, and yes, as you heard, you only have a few weeks to check it out. We've posted up some useful links about the object of the portrait. You can check it out at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. There's a degree of inevitability that Pākehā composer Jenny McLeod would be the one to bring the life story of Hōhepa Tamihana to an operatic stage premiering at the 2012 International Arts Festival. A long-term friendship with the whānau struck up some years ago, a passion for music, and involvement as a choral master at an annual Easter gathering of Catholic Māori has all contributed to Jenny McLeod's love for Māori. Mariah Rakuraku finds out more. Perched on the edge of a very skinny road that looks out across to Kapiti Island off the west coast of Wellington and Pukirua Bay is the home of Pākehā composer Jenny McLeod. I enter her cottage to a wall covered in photographs and sunlight streaming in through the parlour window onto the table, which is where we sit. I've come to talk with Jenny about her opera, Hōhepa, that debuted at this year's International Arts Festival. 
However, it becomes apparent that her involvement in the Māori has been lifelong. I knew that Pākehā had a lot to learn from Māori people when they were ready. And the, they were, the reason I was there was to learn. So, well, of course, what happened? Nothing happened. Just wait and see. So how old were you? Oh, well, it was, it was 20 years ago, just about. So prior to that, Jenny, what was your knowledge of things Māori? Um, well, I, I grew up, having sort of mostly grown up in Levin, that was in the days when uh, there was no high school at uh, Otaki, so all the Otaki Māori used to come to, um, to Levin to school. And, uh, I mean, I did know, I mean, uh, I was in the Māori club, you know, and I used to play the piano. And I, 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 Why were you in the Māori club? Oh, because I loved it, you know. I, 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 I loved it. I wanted to do that, you know. And uh, um, Were you the only parker in the Māori club? Oh, I might have been. I didn't even notice it that day. But uh, one of my best friends was... You may have been the only one who knew how to play the piano. No, no. Because oh, no, everybody a, did. Amy, Amy Taylor. Amy Taylor. Did you ever heard, heard of her? Um, Ngāti Raukawa. But that's where the tahiwi whānau comes from and yeah. all those Māori Oh, yeah, well, she played the piano, you see. I think, actually, that she got me in so that she didn't have to play the piano all the time. <laughs> and I bet some of those Māori boys are giving you a bit of a wink. Oh, no, no, no. Wasn't into that, you know. <laughs> well, no, no, I don't. That had nothing to do with that, no. True, it was just, uh, I liked it. It was fun. And, uh, so, and, of course, in those days, I mean, I don't know if they still do, but... Uh, the girls' hockey team, we did the haka. We did the kamate kamate. So by the time I got to be um, at, at, right towards the end, the captain of the girls' hockey team, uh, I, I, you were I were leading the haka, and man, that just sent me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I loved that. So that when, I mean, I was about 16, and I got a, a overseas scholar. Tunia had one of these too, Tunia Baker. This is where I met her um, on, on the boat to America. American Field Service uh, scholarship. Exchange Scholarship, yeah. So she and I went the same year. And uh, before I went, I said to her, I'm going to get there. I want to tell them about Maori. You know, I want to do Maori things for them over in America. And so Amy taught me. <laughs> I couldn't the do poi. it now. She taught me the double long poi. <laughs> but, but I couldn't do that now, but I could do it then. And I took my guitar, you know, and she got me a pupu and, a, you know, a whole business. And I knew, you know, some Maori action songs. I used to sing those in Maori. And, uh, and this seemed to me perfectly normal and natural thing to do when I got to the States. And, of course, w when you're one of those students, they're always asking you to do things. Um, you know, invite you to the Rotary, the Lions, the Elks, the, all these clubs, you know, and I would just go and, and with my everything, I would just do a bit of this and a bit of that. It was a, like a mini, mini a little mini, concert. Mini, yeah, <laughs> I did exactly what uh, Amy and what I knew from the club. I did exactly that. I was drawn always. In your Maori. lifetime, you've drawn to things there, Yeah, yeah, and, and, and way, way back in the late 60s, when the first book of New Zealand first came out, Alan Kurnow's book, it had a translation, English translation of Maori creation poetry uh, in it, and oh, that just... Oh, I took that book with me when I, when I was a student. I took it with me overseas because it just spoke to me so deeply. And... Uh, I've always felt like that ever since I knew that poetry. And uh, 
I thought that poetry was dead, you know. Um, and uh, you're talking about that kind of language that's the, the, used in the old language, mm. and and but also this old chant, you know, about mm. from the decore and everything. Because um, I'd never heard anything like that in my in, amongst my Maori friends. It wasn't talked about. Uh, but of course, I I didn't go. I was in Levin. I didn't realise there was a Maori world, mm. you know, of its own. That you have to be that it was in a mind and that those things thing. are going on there yeah, the whole yeah. time. Yeah, but, but they were in Parky, I just don't know about them. So and we're talking the know. 1950s, uh, 1960s? The 1960s. Then Joan, um, weeks or months after, you know, I said about want to learn, uh, she said, uh, you, you should come on the Tera Oiwaka. Well, I don't know what, you know, oh, I, oh well, that was the annual canoe trip down the Wanganui River by the Iwi. I was scared stiff. I was scared I might get drowned. That's what I was scared of. of no the life jackets. I was scared of the river. So I went away and I wrote my will. <laughs> and then I found that Joan wasn't going to be... There is something about that river to fear, though, isn't oh, there? You, fear and respect. Mm. But like anything of nature that's big, like the mountain, the river, you They're know. the most ancient things we have here. Respect, koro, you know. Um, and so, I mean, when I left, started out, but by another two weeks down the in, other end of the wa- river uh, and, uh, you know, it rode a, a good way, you know, all the way actually from Tamaranu. And, and uh, we stopped at different marae on the way. How fantastic. And, oh, it was fantastic. And there was all the stories, you know, the experience. History. Oh, look, it was fantastic. And, and so I... God, uh, you would have felt like you are in, the, you know, the steps of the tupuna. Yeah, you do. There's no roads, no roads. And what you hear, the birds. And then Auntie Biddy in the walker with me, you know, because we were in a six-man, she starts karanga, karanga to the nahere. Oh, beautiful. And then we're just coming down towards uh, Marae Kofai, uh, you know, where the Ohura River meets the Wanganui River. And I got there in in the earliest... Waka, and we climbed up this hill and we saw the rest of our waka coming down the awa and they had sort of joined uh, by holding each other's sides right across the awa and Che, one of our young um, men was standing between... Was that Che Wilson? Yeah, yeah, you know Che? Yes. Yeah, yeah, well Che, he, he was doing a, a, a ngere, um, I can't remember which one it was, it probably was a ripi ripi, I'm not sure. Um, but this was just echoing because big cliffs on the other side there, just echoing. And I thought, man, I'm just hearing this land. I'm hearing the voice of this land, you know. I get the same feeling sort of when I hear Richard Nunn's playing as Kawawa. I feel I'm hearing this land actually speaking. That's the voice of, it's of the of the Tupunas too, but it's it belongs here. The, my relationship with the iwi is, is um, well, I just got to know my brother um, in the last few years because he's been away 30, 40 years and he's my only sort of living whānau, close, immediately family. I've only just got to know him in the last few years. but Reconnect with him. Yeah, yeah well, but connect much more deeply because see, he never understood me before or, and I never understood him probably, you know. we just, Is there only two of just, you in your whānau? Now there's only. Well, there used to be three siblings. and the parents are gone. The whānau, my my whānau, Ngāti Rangi, um, has been my whānau all, all along since I got to know them. 
you know, embedded in the community, basically, so that I go back there now, a Jenny, lot. You know. To me, you don't seem like the kind of person that would put up with much humbug, right? So how have you found it? Because with the mahi that you do as a composer, which means you're granted entry into some very elite places. Oh, you mean how do you find? I how yeah. do you find their responses are to things Maori? Well, I, 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 and and about their position within Aotearoa, the Pakia position within Aotearoa. Most of the people that I have to do with in the music world are composers. Now, um, and, and composers and uh, performers. And generally, I find those sorts of people, I don't know how it is with the other arts, but I find they're way ahead of of the rest of our society. The sorts of judgment that you come across in other areas of Pākehā society, I've never... But maybe they never dared to do it in front of me, you know. But also, I mean, I was, and I am, a close friend of Gillian Whitehead and have been since we were students, you know. And it's only been in much more recent years that she's gone much to her... To her Māori. Māori. yeah, yeah. So th there's, a, uh, there's quite a bit of awe towards her, you know, like her, her, her relationship with Richard and Richard and the New Zealand String Quartet and the various um, serious collaborators that she's had to do. And also, I mean, with the, with the Taonga... Apuro, you know, the... The, the revitalisation yeah, of the, the Taonga the, the, There are some um, young Pākehā composers who, who, you know, their ears just like-minded, really. I don't know if it's the same sort of connection that I feel, you know, it's the land, but they prick their ears up. Maybe it's a bit like in the old days, you know, people used to say, oh, but you're a woman, you're a woman composer, and I'd say, yeah, well, nobody ever said anything about that to me. I never thought there was anything strange about being a woman composer. You know, I just developed my friendship and love of the Maori people. Nobody would, I don't think they would dare to, to say, what are you doing with those people, you know? And if they think it, you know, I would read it in their faces. I had been away to Europe for a few months. This was, oh, the, I think, about the next year after I uh, met Joan and Matthew and all of them. And uh, I, I went away for six weeks and I came back and Auntie Joan had died while I was away. Oh, you must have been gutted. Oh, I was, because mm. I was... Like she might, I never had an older sister. No. We'd had some lovely conversations about our work, her work. She was she's a composer, you know, and we just talked on such a lovely level. And I was looking forward to all these conversations. Me and her were going to have, and I got back, and she was gone. But anyway, before she went, and she never mentioned this to me, but she asked to Matthew, um, would you ask Jenny if she would come and be our choir judge, our permanent choir judge. Now, I didn't know, you know, for the Huiaranga, well, I didn't know what was the Huiaranga. The Hui is the annual gathering of Catholic Māori held every Easter. Hosted around the country at places significant to the Catholic Katorika faith. As well as the usual sports, religious lessons during the weekend, a major part is a singing competition, which is how a Pākehā woman became a fixture at the Huiaranga. And uh, it turned out eventually, you know, I found this out after a sort of process of doing it differently for a few years. They wanted they wanted at least a four-part, maybe a five-part choir piece that I would write or I would arrange it, or uh, and it had to be in Māori. And then and then I, I sort of had to supply it to all... There's about 12 Māori Catholic clubs 
that come every year to the for herd. them to learn. Yeah, for them to learn, and then I had to judge it, you know. <laughs> so I wasn't allowed to help any of them, especially <laughs> my own father. No, 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 <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're not on. Sorry, they keep sort of. Oh, can't you come over in here and tell us? <laughs> and no, no, no. Sorry, the others will, you know, can't do that. <laughs> um, and, and then also there was the, like the sacred solo, you know, and the huiaranga goes on for four or five days. And, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't know about them. This is all another part of the Maori world. Pākehā have no idea. They have no idea about these teeny-weeny um, Catholic clubs, churches all over the place that sing in these four-part or five-part right. songs. And even in Kapahaka, Jenny, yeah. as part of your line-up, line-up for the Kapahaka event, you have a choral license. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's 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 rounded. It's broad, and and there's kapahaka at at the huiaranga too. One, and then there's a whole day of sports. You know, I loved that breadth. I think this is natural way to do it. You know, just to be good at everything. And it's not necessarily all the same people doing the, but but there's a lot of the same people. And then you know, I found well, they're not even allowed to be to be sort of in for the aggregate prize, the overall <laughs> prize, unless they put a, right. a choir entry in. You know, so uh, over the years, I've just sort of been working away. We've all been working away. So you got really there are good. all these waiata that you've composed. Oh, I only, uh, I didn't, there's some, but I did a lot of arrangements uh, of old, you know, Wanganui River songs. Yeah, or, and I've got, I've got quite a lot of them, you know, um, that I can still do. And that we sort of resurrect old songs. It used to be that only the club that was on stayed to listen to their own club. And, and make a big noise, yeah, but but, goes. but now that they're, they're sort of sitting for the whole evening because they've got their ears have got used to be able to tell because the choirs are very different. Even though they learn from well, they learn from a tape, but I give them the music, of course. But but all the choirs, depending on where they're from, you know, and who's in it that year, uh, they they can be quite different. And I think the, the the others have got used to listening and they they're able to tell, you know, now who, who's actually singing more like what it's supposed to be. So none of these have been recorded? Um, not really. Well, no. well the best the best thing is, I mean, I so the, the competition goes on on the Saturday night and it goes on for hours, you know. Um, but on the Sunday morning, um, right at the end of the Sunday Resurrection Mass, you know, we have the choir test piece mass choir version. And so they don't have, there's no rehearsal for that. As soon as the, the liturgy's finished, they all just get up there and whoever won the conductor conducts them. And, and they sing. And the magic thing is that all the mistakes, that every club makes its own mistakes, you know, they get different things wrong. Somehow when they all get together, there's a thing with Maori people. They listen because they don't want to stick out making, making their mistake, you know. And uh, uh, it's it's... Touchwood, may it continue. The mass choir version is awesome, you know, and and everybody loves it. So it's and for me, it's not avant-garde. It's not contemporary. I mean, I do plenty of that in my Pakeha world, but I just do for this. I do something I know will work, and I stick a two or three amens on the end, give it a bit of a oomph, you know. And uh, um, so it's yeah. Well, well, we've done quite a few of them by now. Because I've done one every year since it must be a, well, 18 or 19. And that, wow. So how many years has that been? Well, it's, get, well, it's getting on for 20 years that I've been doing... I've had inquiries, you know, sometimes for the, the big... Uh, um, the the, the uh, Kapahaka Matasini. 
Yeah, matatinin. Yeah, well, um, some they said, you know, could we use her? They want to use one of our arrangements of uh, of uh, him, you know, for their their own him entry. But um, lately, uh, I got a um, request from St Mary of the Angels Church. It's got a a good Pākehā choir. I mean, they pay uh, an organist and they pay a choir master permanently. And uh, I mean, I know the choir master because we were students <laughs> together. Um, I did a I did a couple of years ago for ours, uh, we, we did a, a, a Maori version of um, Panis Angelicus. It's about the communion. That's the one. Yeah, um, so I, I made a four-part version of that. And uh, oh, it was lovely. But now, now the park house... They want because they they're getting ready for their for their white Waitangi mass next year, and they want to do they want to sing some Maori, you know. But but what are they, what are they going to sing? Morvin Simon, he, he, Morv is Wanganui, you know, and he comes to the Yaranga and uh, you know does real good yeah. things. And he he translated it for me, so it's a beautiful translation. And then uh, yeah, and we've got the English and the Latin. They could sing in all of those. So is Sui and Te Reo Māori now becoming in vogue in, within the Pākehā choral community? Well, it looks a bit like... like I mean, it's happening more and more. Ko marae rakaraku tēnei, ko tēnei te hotaka te ahikā. I've been talking with Jenny McLeod, Pākehā composer, about her involvement in Te Ao Māori and Te Hui Aranga. For photos and additional information, head to our webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. Ai, kia ora korua. For information about Te Hui Aranga, the annual Catholic Māori Hui held every Easter, please head to our webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. You'll also find our archives and accorded or recorded in April this year between Deborah Waikapohe and Philip Rhodes, the leads from the opera Hōhepa that Jenny composed, that debuted at the International Arts Festival this year. Reggae Group 1814 are one of New Zealand's premier bands and recently began their tour in Australia to promote their latest album, Relax. I caught up with founding member Patsu Colbert. Kia ora, Patsu. Kia ora, Justine. Kia ora, kia ora. If you could first tell me, uh, Patsu, where you were you born, raised, where you call home? Oh, heck, I was, uh, actually I was born down in Rotorua, Spent most of my life in a place called Ngotaha, and but uh, my bones actually from up north in uh, Kyle, and um, I affiliate to uh, Apuhi and Ngatikahu. Now, Patsu, you are of course with um, one of New Zealand's best reggae bands, eighteen fourteen. How did the group start? Oh well, well I started the the band as a, a job for my kids really. Um, <laughs> Because there's not much happening up north, and my boys, both my boys, got a bit of talent for music, and one plays the drums and one plays the bass, and we sort of started playing around Northland at gala days and community, community stuff, and um, yeah, sort of grown from there. In 1814, I know the story behind it, but why did you choose the name 1814? Oh well, we we were playing in church at the time, mm. and um, yeah, the inspiration for the whole the whole idea of um, playing our music sort of originated out of church and in 1814 was the first sermon preached in this country in a place called Ohi in the Bay of Islands. So when you say played in church, did were you um, a, a, a Christian um, band? 
Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, we were playing music every Sunday, and that's pretty much where we learned to play. Gee, so, so which, was this a church up north? Yes, this was a small church in Kyle. Did it all begin from... So those were the early days of 1814, um, you know, beginning the, the, the journey. Was reggae always a, a strong point for, for the group? Uh, well, it was for me, you know. Um, one of my sons, he's quite a funky bass player, and he likes playing uh, different sounds to myself and my other son, Sean, on the drums. But, uh, no, we, we have a liking to reggae music, and, you know, we, we're great fans of um, Catch a Fire and bands like House of Shame, and, and I saw that uh, both bands had fathers playing with sons. And, you know, it was just, um, we just sort of slotted right in there as a family. <laughs> So 2004, is that when 1814 officially started as a, as a band? Uh, well, 2004, I was playing with my boys and just playing around community events around Northland and stuff. And um, we come down to do a gig in Auckland for Māori Television. And um, it was straight after that gig, we got offered some festivals. And mm. um, after that, I think the following week, uh, I went home and sat down and thought it all out and then I went to see my nephew, Darren Carton, who's a great singer, great vocalist, and asked him if he wanted to join the band, and he pretty much joined the band that weekend, and we've been on the road ever since. So just to clarify, Patsu, is Darren the, the, the lead vocalist? Yeah, Darren's the lead vocalist. Uh, he's my nephew, and we come from up in Kyle, a place called Waihapa. So when Jar Rhythm launched, um, did you anticipate the success that the album would have? No, not really. You know, um, it's a dream, really, at the end of the day, and we're just trying to follow follow the dream, and if people like the music, and we are so lucky that people have picked up on our sounds all over the country and Australia, and um, we have to go um, travel around the world um, in the next couple of years, so we're just lucky that people like our music. Yep, so let's talk about the new album. It's called Relax, the name of the album. So is this a description of, um, you know, the the mood that 1814 is in or um, the, the type of music that features on the album? Why why the name of that uh, particular... Uh, why why the name Relax? Oh, you wouldn't believe it, but the, the album actually had about three names. Really? <laughs> yes, because we couldn't settle on a name. It was... Um, I was just trying to uh, put songs together for the album that's sounding a bit more commercial than Jar Rhythm, you know. Um, I understand that you need a lot of airplay to to get your music heard around the country, and, and sometimes if we, the the reggae music, you know, it's not really played on mainstream radio. Mm. So I've been just trying to get a bit more commercialised with our sound so more people get to listen to it, because um, I'm still meeting people around the country who have never heard of 1814, and yet we've been out there for um, six solid years travelling. Yeah. So it just made me realise, unless you get on mainstream radio, you're still pretty much underground. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's not to um, take anything away from the huge following that you have via the iwi radio, via Māori TV. Do you want to break more into that mainstream um, forum? Yeah, yeah, no, we have to get into the mainstream. I, I think the mainstream is sort of pretty much a must, otherwise it's just hard to make a living in, uh, as a musician in New Zealand, you know, and if you get sort of mainstream play, it just widens your audience and it and it does it for overseas as well. So that's yes. pretty much the goal for me at the moment. So the um the album um Patsu, talk about relax, man, with names like Sunshine, Daydream, Unite, you know. <laughs> I was listening to it in the car the other day going, Yeah man, I feel pretty relaxed. What are some of the um tell us about some of the tracks that feature, for example, one of my favourites is um Unite. There's some really nice vocals going on in that Wayata. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unite, um, Nehan and Mickey Harrison, who's uh, our new BV singer in the band, he wrote the lyrics to it, and 
we put the tune to it uh, just a couple of weeks before going in the studio. And um, now we all took a liking to that song. There's actually quite a few songs on there that have a different sound. Yeah. You know, like we've got a song called Prophet. Yeah, there's different flavours on there, but it's it's all pretty much a sort of a relaxing album to listen to. I think the fastest song we put on there was The Time Has Come, and that's the last song on the track. Yes. Uh, sort of picked me up to uh, see the album through, but, um, you know, there's, there's different flavours on there, and I'm just hoping that people um, accept a bit of changes that we've done in our music. What about Sunshine? I mean, is that just a, like, where was the inspiration about for, for, for the song Sunshine? Okay, Sunshine, um, our sex player Chris put that song together a while back and uh, we just added to it and and put our flavour to it and our spin to it and Darren put the vocal to it and now it's, it seems to be a quite a happy Sunshine song. Hey, there's some pretty tight female vocals going on too. Nice. Some fantastic harmonies as well. Another new BV singer in the band is Kalani Masters from Rotorua and she's um, taken over from my niece Harmony who moved back to Australia. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, she's doing well. She's only been in the band, um, geez, a couple of months, if that. Do you have auditions, or is it just like a whānau affair? <laughs> uh, we did have some auditions for the BV singers, and we yeah. didn't get much bites, actually. Um, we didn't put it really out there in the public eye because okay. we were still working at the time. And, yeah, no, I'm just trying to keep the band working, you know, without too much disruptions. I think our, our um, sounds have evolved. Uh, I think we've learned a lot over the past six years. Yep. Um, and I, I think that the music is, is evolving. And now I'm just trying to reach more people with it, you know, at the end of the day. Like we go over to Australia, we're always playing in front of whānau in Australia, you yeah. know, and you can count the Australians uh, working behind the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's things like that. And, and, and you know, we want to build our, our fan base, so we just got to get out there and reach more people as we can. Is is touring quite lucrative for eighteen fourteen Patsy? I mean, you've you've got uh, all the all the ragamuffin. Well, most of the ragamuffin, um, the Ladi Da. There's you know the New Year's gigs, um, um, jazz festivals. I mean, is, is that quite um, in terms of putia, in terms of money? Is that is that how the group um, you know makes uh, some cash? Yeah, you know the festivals are, um, are great getting around the country. Um... We we play quite a bit up and down the country every year. I know, you know right you're busy right through right through the year. Yeah, and um, the the festivals around the summertime are really great for all the bands. Yep, you know there, there's your fan base out there. You've always got an opportunity to play in front of a new fan base. It can be lucrative, but it and sometimes it can't be. It just depends if everyone pays up. Yeah, that's that's very true. So out of out of fifty two weeks of the year, how how much is eighteen fourteen on the road? Uh, this is this year has been our our hardest year, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, since we first started, yeah, I, I just see a, a big turn in the entertainment industry. It's it's in New Zealand, Australia, it's all around the world actually. And uh, you know, we just got to adapt for the changes that are happening and and make the most of it. What's your schedule looking like for uh, Christmas, New Year's? Oh, geez, we're all over the place. Um, <laughs> this summer, yeah, we're since um, Relax come out, you know, I've got. 30-plus gigs planned between yeah. now and into February. And then um, next year I hope to be on to a new album. Jeez, no no rest for the wicked, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a big market out there, you know, and, and I'm just starting to think the more we, m- the more music we have out there, the better it would be for us. 
Kia ora, Patu Colbert, executive producer and founding member of reggae band 1814. They're going to be pretty busy in the next few months. We wish them well. To find out more about 1814 and their music, head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. We enjoy getting feedback as well. Fano ma, you can email us, teahika at radionz.co.nz or find us on Facebook. Anaira itahiunga fakamarama mote fakatoki itene wiki. You can see as you move through the exhibition, there's bits of text on the wall, there's um, some fakatoki on the wall as well, um, taken from Hidden Meads. Um, yes. Yep. And so those, those sort of relate to different um, areas as well. So you can move through the exhibition and you can see the relationships between the words that um, Hidden Mead has written down and the objects on display. The Whakatauki says, Ka kino tō paunamu, he kino paunamu onamata. Your greenstone is awesome and its quality comes from ancient times. Uh, very old taonga have a mana derived from their great age, thus the value placed on heirlooms, and that's sourced from Hirini Mukomid and Neil Grovna Pepeha Anga Tupuna 2001. Tēnā koe e kāo. Next week, Mariah is in Tokoroa and checks out a supermarket that is normalising te reo Māori with its signage. And I take a tour with William Waitua at Napier's Tabard Theatre. And yes, we talk about kehua, or ghosts. He mihi tēnei kia koutou katoa e are taringa mai nei ki tēnei hōtaka. A tui tērā ki ngā kairā wiki wiki mihini ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rātapu. Mauri ora. <laughs>